Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. When you're an American Express Platinum card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even... Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Today's business travelers are finding that fitting in a little leisure time keeps them recharged and excited on work trips. I know this because whenever I travel for work, I always try and meet up with a friend to catch up, have a great dinner, or hit a museum wherever I am. So if you're traveling for work, go with the card that puts the travel in business travel, the Delta SkyMiles Platinum Business American Express card. If you travel, you know. This episode is brought to you by Pipedrive, the easy and effective CRM for closing more deals and driving small business growth. New year, new targets. Pipedrive allows you to automate your sales process so you can focus on your other business priorities in 2024. With Pipedrive, you can stay on top of your sales activities so you never miss a follow-up. So sign up today and get a special 60-day free trial now at pipedrive.com with the code BUILT. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, it's Guy here. Have you ever thought about starting a business? And if so, what would it be? How do you come up with an idea? How do you find the money to start? How do you get the word out about your product or service? What do you do if your idea isn't working? And how do you pivot? Well, to answer those questions, I've written a book. It's called What Else? How I Built This, and it's full of inspiring stories from some of the greatest entrepreneurs in the world who've been through the trenches, made big mistakes, and lived to tell the tale. If you're looking to start something or just want to be inspired by those who've built incredible things, pick up How I Built This now wherever you buy your books or by visiting GuyRaz.com. It was incredibly stressful. We were digging into our savings about five or $6,000 a month. Uh, and, you know, but my male ego was trying to shelter my family for, from it. So I was putting on a strong face to my friends and family. And, you know, you can imagine my mother who, you know, when I told her I'd quit my job, I, you know, I still remember her first word was, what? From NPR, it's How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, how a random decision to help a cousin with her math homework led Sal Khan to build Khan Academy, a free online teaching platform with nearly 30 million users a month. So most of the products and services we've talked about on the show have been innovative or disruptive in some way. But some of them, and you've heard me say this before, have fundamentally changed the way we live. I mean, Lyft, Airbnb, Starbucks, Shopify, Wayfair. These brands have transformed the way that many of us shop and travel and work. 
But every now and then, a founder comes along that seems to want to do something even more ambitious, even more transformative. Like, remember Pat Brown? He founded Impossible Foods to create meat out of plants. Meat so meat-like that even the most die-hard carnivores would want to eat it. Pat wants to put a stop to meat production, period, because of the damage it's doing to the planet. And essentially, and I don't think I'm overstating this, he set out from day one to change the world. But still, Pat Brown stands to make a lot of money from his company. Same with most of the founders who've been on this show. And I don't think any of them are motivated primarily to make money, but it is part of the story. They make a product or offer a service, sell it to you and me, and they also get rich. Perfectly fine. But what about someone who makes a product or offers a service that is equally transformational, maybe even more so, but makes it 100% free? To do that, you have to make personal sacrifices, starting by earning a lot less money, which is just part of what makes Salcon so incredibly remarkable. Over the past 12 years, he's built Khan Academy into a powerhouse, a massive online learning platform that offers free tutorials to anyone, anywhere. And from the very beginning, Sal decided his academy would be a nonprofit, that it should never be tempted to compromise on its values. But before he launched Khan Academy, Sal didn't anticipate any of this. He was just trying to help a younger cousin with her sixth grade math lessons. At the time, he was working for a hedge fund. But from those early days of doing one-on-one tutorials, Sal gradually built a platform that offers hundreds of classes in dozens of languages. Nearly 30 million people use Khan Academy every month to learn math, science, the arts, even SAT prep, all for free. And Khan Academy has inspired the launch of many other online learning platforms. But many of them are for-profit operations that charge money. But we'll get to all of that in a moment. First, let's back up just a little bit. Sal Khan grew up in Metairie, Louisiana. His mom was from India, and his dad was from Bangladesh. And the marriage ended when Sal was pretty young. My parents, you know, had issues, and so... Uh, They separated when I was probably about 18 months old, two years old. And then I had really never, you know, seen my father again. I saw him once uh, for an evening when I was 13 and then he passed away the next year. So it was really my um, mother who who raised us as a a single mother. Wow. Was there a community of of South Asian families in, in Metairie when you were growing up? Yeah, my... You know, when my parents separated, we actually lived with my young uncles at the time. They were in their 20s. And so they all were kind of like father figures and uh, almost like older siblings uh, to, to me as well. And in a lot of ways, they were not your stereotypical, um, you know, just come to the U.S., study, you know, get a job, save money, uh, kind of prudent immigrant story. They were they were much more embracing of New Orleans uh, culture, and, and I would say they're the most New Orleanian uh, South Asians you will ever find in, hmm. in your life. Um, I had a very colorful childhood, you know, late night parties, people singing and dancing. 
you know, for, for me, it felt like a, 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 I remember my third birthday that my uncle's got a belly dancer. I still remember Habiba, you know, uh, so <laughs> it was definitely a different type of childhood, but it was uh, in some ways a really rich one. Sal, what did your mom do for a living? The first job that I remember her having, uh, she she was the, the the person who takes the change out of the vending machine at the uh, at the local hospital. Actually, the hospital where I was born, hmm. and she took me to work a couple of times because she didn't have childcare. Uh, and I thought at the time, I remember you know watching her do that and think it was like the coolest job on earth because <laughs> you you, know, you have this key that you can open up the vending machine and like quarters just pour out of it. Um, uh, so uh, she did that for a little bit, and then. Essentially, was a cashier at a series of convenience stores, just kind of doing, you know, one minimum wage job after another. And then I was in high school. Uh, she had remarried. Uh, her and my stepdad at the time were able to uh, kind of cobble together to get a, a, a small uh, convenience store in Metairie. In your book, you write, uh, Louisiana was as close to South Asia as the United States could get. It had spicy food, humidity, giant cockroaches, and a corrupt government, um, which is um, both funny but somewhat true, true, I guess, right? I mean, you grew up at a time when, um, like, David Duke was the, like, the representative in the state legislature. Yeah, the, the part of Metairie where we had our store, it was called Seminole Convenience Store on Seminole Avenue, and it's called a part of Metairie called Bucktown. That was kind of the heart of uh, David Duke's base, so to speak. I remember, you know, right outside of our our store across the street was the largest David Duke for president sign I've ever seen. And so it was a, it, you know, the, the folks who lived in the neighborhood who were frankly, you know, super David Duke supporters, uh, you know, in, in some ways it was lucky this was pre 9-11. Uh, they didn't really know what to make of, of my family at, at the time. Uh, you know, we've had a few conversations, I remember, with people at the store where they, they openly told us that they were trying to decide whether we were white or the N-word. Um, wow. to, you know, we were confusing them. Um, but, you know, growing up, I was, you know, the only brown kid in, 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 in the classroom. Yeah. Uh, but I never felt in school uh, at all like folks were in any way uh, biased or racist against me. If anything, I have to give the, the school system, the Jefferson Parish school system, a lot of credit. Uh, you know, I think a lot of what I am today is because they gave me opportunities. There were teachers that believed in me. I had a really good friend circle. Uh, so, so I have no, you know, I, I don't feel like it was a, a, a tough childhood so was your mom, um, did she have very strict expectations for you? I mean, she had come from India to the United States, made a lot of sacrifices. Did she sort of, you know, would she say you have to be an engineer, a doctor, a lawyer? Like, w w was there any kind of talk like that at home when you were a kid? You know, my mother... Uh, definitely did instill some really strong values or, you know, just seeing her operate. My mom is a very courageous person. And, you know, we were the only family that, that in our friend circle where, you know, we, we were kind of not well off uh, or at least not middle class. Uh, but I think that was helpful too, because the family friends we had, many of them were the stereotypical uh, doctors and engineers. And, you know, you obviously can see where you live and you see where those kids live and you can see kind of our financial insecurity. I still remember, I must have been eight or nine years old at, at Kmart and I was being a brat. I really wanted to be, you know, buy this Hot Wheel set. And I was throwing a tantrum in the Kmart. And I remember that was the first time that my mom kind of just kind of broke down a little bit and says, don't you realize we have no money? And, um, 
you know, one of my uncles, they had a they had a, a food store in a really rough neighborhood in New Orleans. He got shot. Um, you know, people, wow. you know, we thought yeah. he was going to die. I think I was about eight years old at the time. So I was just like, I don't, I don't want that life. I'd rather have the life of, of my other South Asian friends who are, whose parents are, um, you know, who, who are professionals. Sal, I'm trying to figure out where your framing comes from. The way you frame your childhood is pretty remarkable because I think you can also, I mean, I mean, somebody with the same same experience could say, actually, it was really hard. You know, we were financially insecure. My uncles had a convenience store. My mom did. It was not safe. There were robberies. We were, you know, the only brown-skinned people in our neighborhood. There was racism. I mean, the way you frame your childhood is totally different from the way I think a lot of people would frame it. And I wonder what you attribute that to. I mean, where does that come from? Well, you know, I, I genuinely think it was a it was a rich and colorful childhood, and and uh, there was definitely hard aspects of it. But I think everyone has their their own flavor of hardships, and for the most part, I think whatever hardships or constraints we had helped grow me, and and you know, and, and it gives you a perspective on life. And and I wouldn't describe my childhood as idyllic by any stretch of the imagination, but I would, right. I would, I would describe it as colorful and and rich. And and it definitely, I had experiences that you know a lot of kids didn't have, which I think uh, were actually, in hindsight, quite incredible. Yeah, I read that when you were in high school, uh, you were in a heavy metal band or a death metal band or I don't know which one is, <laughs> which one was it is that true yes i was the lead singer but you know singing is a, is being very generous to what i was doing it was more of yelling or growling um you were the lead growler of the death metal band i was the lead growler of a death metal what, band what was the band called original name and I cringe when I say these things now. It was malignancy, uh, but then we had to change our name because there was a band in Florida called Malignancy. And so, anyway, it, it, you know, it, it was uh, me and and uh, three other guys. Uh, <laughs> um, all right, so you were in this band, and um, but it sounds like school was um, pretty easy for you. That you were doing pretty well. Yeah, I was a kid that kind of did just whatever I needed to do to to get a decent grade and it was about ninth or 10th grade that I started getting really serious about studies and I remember in 10th grade I kind of lived, lived this double life where I was on kind of the academic teams and quiz bowl and science olympiad and uh, I was chosen to be on uh, uh, representing Louisiana at national academic games and it was the wow. same weekend as our first big gig as a death metal band and so I had this kind of path. I had this choice that I had to pick. This was, this was Malignancy's first main Yeah, we, we had an opportunity to open up for Paralysis, uh, which is a big deal. And uh, Malignancy <laughs> opens for Paralysis. Yeah, it's, it's definitely. And, you know, some of my the people who were in my band, they were starting to get into trouble. Some of them started doing some drugs, you know, getting getting a little bit into, I would call, a scary crowd. Um and and that frankly, you know, I had my I had my quiz bowl and academic games friends, <laughs> and then and then uh, I had I had some of my my other friends who were, you know, their their life was getting really tough, and they were starting to to I would say get into trouble, and that that scared me. Huh. So when it came time to apply to college, were you encouraged to aim pretty high, like like to a prestigious school? Yeah, I give a lot of credit to my sister. You know, she was always a little ahead of me, and. 
Yeah, I looked at the schools that she was applying for when she was graduating from high school. I was in middle school or, or freshman at the time, and she was applying to places like Brown University. And I was like, Farah, have you looked at the tuition at Brown University? There's no way we're going to be able to afford that. And she's like, no, there's something called financial aid and you can get loans and and all of this. And, and she ended up going to Brown and that completely opened up my mind of what's possible. And, and to give my mom fair credit, she definitely, you know, I think South Asian culture, Indian culture, whatever you want to call it, you know, there is this very you could call it positive or negative peer pressure of like, Oh, so what are your kids yeah. doing? So-and-so's kids going to med school. What, you know, right. someone's kid right. got a, has a, has a, has a perfect GPA is a valedictorian. Is your kid only the salutatorian? <laughs> so she kind of would often tell us stuff like, you know, you should be valedictorian just like Thuheen. Thuheen was this kid we knew who was 10 years older, who had, I think by the time he was 18, he had a PhD from Tulane. So, you know, it's, I think he now has two PhDs and an MD. So, so I remember there's a lot, I heard a lot about Thuheen. <laughs> So, so I guess your mom was pretty happy because you wound up going to MIT. And, and, and when you got there, was it just so exciting? It was for me. Uh, you know, when, when I got there, I was it, it did feel like heaven on so many levels for me. You know, it was the first environment that I had been in that really are like, you know, you shouldn't be ashamed if you're getting excited in an organic chemistry class. <laughs> I still remember right. one of my friends, Narendra, who I actually met in the organic chemistry class. Like, I literally saw him getting excited about <laughs> what was being talked about. He was having epiphanies as, as we were talking about, like, the Aldol reaction. And um, it's the closest thing to Hogwarts in, in the real world where, uh, hmm. you know, science is magic. And you can walk down, you know, the, the main hallway in MIT is called the Infinite Corridor. And you're just seeing, you know, people with like that. Some of them are a little bit unusual in their affect and all of this, but they all have these magical superpowers. And there's <laughs> professors who are inventing things and building things. And this is right in the late 90s where the Internet and computer science was was starting to become very uh, relevant to, to broader to, to society as a whole. So it's, it's, it's it, MIT was and I think continues to be an incredibly exciting place. Um, you graduated MIT with a master's degree. You, you like double, tripled up on classes and I guess just <laughs> were insanely productive um, and, and got a degree in computer science. Um, what did you do after you graduated? Well, um, I, I remember my senior year. This was about November of my senior year. I talked to a, a friend who was a year older and he had just gotten a job at Oracle and I, I was kind of nosy. I was like, well, how much are they paying you? And yeah. at, and he said $100,000. And for me at the time, I was like, what? Your mind was blown. My mind was blown. My mom was making $16,000 a year. I had about $25,000 in debt, which at the time felt like all the money in the world. Yeah. So I was getting stressed yeah. about it. And I was, and I literally, I remember thinking like, it would be irresponsible for me not to try right. to make that type of money, pay off my debt, help out my family. Uh, and, and just get a little bit more financial security. So I remember that's when I went to my advisor and saying, I think I need to finish the master's this year. And they all thought I was a little bit crazy, but um, it, it happened. And, and, and I actually ended up working at Oracle. <laughs> that's my first job. Wow. So you, you moved to Silicon Valley uh, to work, uh, to California, to, to, to work for Oracle, I guess. Yeah, moved out to the Bay Area. Uh, and you get to, you know, about a year into my tenure there, it's 1999 now. We're at the peak of the dot-com bubble. Um, you know, I remember having a conversation with uh, a friend of mine who was on an H-1B visa from India. And, and he said, Sal, why are you here? I was like, well, you know, it pays really good. He's like, 
I'm here because I have to get my I have to get my immigration. But like you're a citizen, like if I were you, I'd be do I'd be starting a company right now. This yeah, is the late right. '90s, and so uh, yeah, I ended up joining a startup. Uh, it was a startup to it was going to dem- democratize venture capital. It's called MeVC, where the the idea was. Uh, you know, you had all these IPOs that were popping. So a lot of people were trying to get into the venture capital market, but it, obviously it was hard for people to get into it. Yeah. And so these two bankers from Robertson Stevens at the time, they had come up with a structure uh, that could be a publicly traded venture capital fund. And and so that was the startup and it was going to have a tech aspect of it where people could see the investments, et cetera, et cetera. So that was what I was uh, supposed to build and, and did build. Huh. It's a great idea, but, but still hasn't been democratized to this day. What happened to the startup? You know, while the Nasdaq was roaring, was doing quite well. It it grew to forty employees. It raised its first fund, which I think was a, a several hundred million dollars. Uh, but then, you know, I still remember that day, and I believe it was you know spring of two thousand when the Nasdaq collapsed. <laughs> and uh, you know, and with that, I saw the the other side of the startup world, where you know every week we'd have to lay off a few folks, and it was incredibly, incredibly painful and political and stressful and that was around the time that I was like yeah maybe I should take shelter someplace yeah so I started looking up uh, applications for business school so you decide to leave um, Silicon Valley and the startup world for at least a time being um, and go to business school you went to back to Massachusetts to Harvard Business School yeah and what was the what was the idea was your idea like all right I'll do this and then I'll go back into the startup world or, or I'll go into finance and get a stable job and you know make a, a, a stable good income like did you have a sense of what you wanted to do I mean if I'm really honest I was I was lonely I was out hmm. in Silicon Valley. I mean, the male-female ratio in Silicon Valley back then was horrendous. I, I also uh, felt traumatized to a large degree by my startup experience because it was it was so painful and political, and 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 I actually told myself that I didn't I didn't have the fortitude to be an entrepreneur. Uh, I, that hmm. that it is it's just it's just so emotionally taxing. Let me go to business school and you know maybe broaden my resume a little bit so people just don't perceive me as the tech guy or the the quant guy. And it was while I was in business school, uh, I started taking finance classes and started Mm. seeing that, wow, there's a real beauty to finance, that it has its quantitative aspect, but it also has a huge psychological and historical aspect to it uh, that I loved. Uh, And I remember taking a capital markets class, and that was probably the the math heaviest class offered in business school. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and the professor's name is George Chaco. I remember going to him after class one day. I was like, you know, I really like this class. And he's like, yeah, you really have a, a knack for capital markets and things like this. I was like, well, what should I do with this? Like, what, what kind of career is this for? He's like, I think you should go work at a hedge fund. And I yeah. said, wow, that sounds great. What's a hedge fund? And, and he explained, you know, it's, it's like a mutual fund, but there's a lot more flexibility in how you invest the money. You can get into exotic things. You can short, you can buy and sell options. And I talked to some friends who are yeah. either who had worked at hedge funds or who were going to work in hedge funds and said, you know, so what, what's the pay like? You know, is it good? And they kind of looked at me like, are you crazy? It's like, it's about as good as it gets. <laughs> so, uh, so I guess you, you decided to do exactly that to get a, a job at a hedge fund. And uh, was it easy to land one? No, I got, you know, you know, I, you know, my application got rejected hundreds of times and my resume did not look like a, a hedge fund resume. I mean, I was getting people in tech who wanted me to be a product manager or something like right. that. But uh, yeah. at, that, at that time, I had 
there was a girl I had a crush on from MIT. She was now in med school in New York. And so I was also like, I need to work in New York. And so um, I was, I literally went through the directory of any hedge fund in New York and I was, I was getting one rejection after another. And then eventually there was uh, this guy, Dan Wool, based in, in Boston, who was apparently kind of getting his hedge fund off the ground. And Dan at the time was 32 years old, I think, or 33 years old. And um, I interviewed with him and he hired me. And he later told me he hired me because I didn't have a background in finance. He liked that I seemed to be kind of a out of the box type of personality. And, uh, you know, it was it's one of these ironies that I had then fallen back into essentially a startup because it was me and Dan and yeah. we were looking for office wow. space and, you know, making sure that the office was dog friendly because he had this large dog <laughs> that we had to <laughs> we had to accommodate. Um, uh, and so, yeah, that that was my first job in finance. How'd it go? How, how did you do? You know, I got to say, it, you know, it, it, it was it was a fascinating job because what we would do is we would screen the market for things that looked just intriguing and we would try to understand that business and the best way to understand that business was try to get the the management team on, on the phone to explain their business to us yeah uh, and and so it was intellectually I, I was like kid in a candy shop because i was able yeah. to every day i mean it's kind of like being a journalist you're able to really dive deeply into these and and my job was actually to be kind of a hyper learner because you know the first half of the calls i would always say like it was, it was a little bit of like gee whiz so how does this work how do logistics work and all that and then the second half of the call i would i would turn up the knob a little bit and i was like what you know what you're saying doesn't make sense <laughs> and push and push the management teams a little bit harder huh and, and i mean while you're doing all this you're you're also sort of starting what would become Khan Academy. I mean, you're working there in Boston, and I guess this is around 2004. Like the story, I guess that I've heard is that your sister's daughter has is like having trouble with math. Is that is that sort of the story? It was a cousin. It was a year. I was a year out of business school. Had just gotten married to the to the umama, uh, my, my, the, the person that I was trying to move to New York for, <laughs> and and uh, the wedding was in New Jersey, which is where my wife grew up. Uh, but then family was visiting from New Orleans and they had come, they wanted to visit uh, Boston during 4th of July. And so I was showing them around town and it just came out of conversation that my 12-year-old cousin Nadia, her mother, Nazrathanti, was telling me that uh, she was having trouble in math. And she's like, Sal, if there's anything you can do, I know, you know, you're more knowledgeable about these types of things. And so I, I talked to Nadia and Nadia said that she was having trouble. She took a placement test at the end of sixth grade. It had a lot of unit conversion in it. She felt that she just couldn't understand unit conversion. And so I told Nadia, I was like, I'm 100% sure you're capable of learning unit conversion. How about when you go back to New Orleans, uh, I'm happy to tutor you remotely. And she was up for it. And so uh, that's that was August of 2004 when I started tutoring Nadia. All right. So remotely sounds fine today, like in the era of Zoom and Slack and stuff. But how did you do that in 2004? Was it Was it over the phone? Yeah, it was over the phone, um, and we'd use Yahoo Instant Messenger to, to type messages or to type questions. And Yahoo Instant Messenger at the time had this feature called Yahoo Doodle, where you can actually, with your mouse, scribble something, and someone on the other side could see what you scribbled. And you could imagine writing math equations with a mouse was pretty painful. And so I got myself and I got Nadia a 
you know, like a, I think it was $60 uh, pen tablet so that you could write. But it was on a little, little part of your instant messenger window, but that's still enough that you could write things like 3x is equal to 6. You know, what is x yeah. equal? Uh, so that's, that's how we did it. And this was just something you were doing at night and, you know, kind of after work. Yeah, we. I was doing it every day, uh, about thirty minutes, getting on the phone. And after, a, a, frankly, a few weeks, Nadia, the first few weeks was just deprogramming her own lack of self-esteem. Uh, but then, after she got through that, she started to believe that she was capable of learning. Unit conversion actually came quite easily to her. Then she got caught up with her class. She came a little ahead of her class. At that point, I became what I call a tiger cousin. You know, I called up her school. I, I say, you know, I really think Nadia Rahman should be able to retake that placement test from last year. They said, who are you? I said, I'm her cousin. And, you know, surprisingly, they let her retake that placement test. And uh, the same Nadia, who was only a few months ago uh, put into a remedial class, was now put into an advanced math class. And I was hooked. Wow. And what was the secret? I mean, was, I mean, how, how did you get her from a remedial class to an advanced class in a matter of months? I, I would love to believe that I'm some type of super tutor or something, but I think the reality is there's actually a lot of research to back this up. That if, if you do have one-on-one -on -one tutoring um, and that tutor is able to identify what your gaps are and fill in those gaps, especially in subjects like mathematics, that most kids can actually, probably all kids could be accelerated dramatically. And uh, that's all that was happening with Nadia. I mean, there was some of it was just motivational. She had almost given up on herself. So I had to just re-motivate her a little bit. Uh, and I think a little bit of the secret, you know, this might sound a little bit of like a, once again, a tiger cousin or tiger parent thing to do. But when you get, when you allow a student to get a little ahead of their class, uh, two things happen. One, when they see it in class, they're like, oh, I've seen this before. So they, it builds a little bit of cushion and also builds confidence. There's just, you know, once you start to realize that you can actually get a little ahead of your class, you're like, oh, maybe this is my thing. Maybe I'm a math person. And I guess like the word gets out in the, around the family in Louisiana and other relatives are like, hey, can you help my kid or can you help me? Is that sort of what happened? Yeah, I mean, put exactly as you described, word spread that free tutoring was going on <laughs> and before, uh, you know, and I was getting requests from, from, from family members all over the country. And by, by 2006, I was tutoring on a given day, anywhere between five and 15 cousins, family, friends are, are on around a given day. On a given day, yeah, I would, they would all get on the speakerphone together. And I would right. answer questions they had, and you know, I, I one one thing I saw with my cousins, the way that math is often taught and especially learned is it's like these fragmented concepts that you have to memorize formulas and patterns and things like that. And what the thing that really served me well growing up is that if you just ponder the math a little bit, it all connects. It all makes intuitive sense. It's all just a way of thinking. And so I was really trying to do what I what I could to to support them all. In the meantime, you were still working at, at a hedge fund, right? I was. And, and, and I, I have to give extra credit to Dan because in the early days when I was working for Wool Capital, Dan's startup hedge fund, it was just me and him, I had bought into the stereotype that you have to work 80 hours a week to make it in finance. So I was ready to do that. And I remember this probably a month or two into starting my job, Dan's like, why are you still here? Why aren't you going home? I was like, no, no, Dan, I'm, I'm ready to, you know, I'm, I'm going to look for more investment ideas. He's like, no, no, go home. I was like, okay. I was like, okay, I'll go home and I'll look for investment ideas. He's like, no, Sal, you're not going to help anybody by just, you know, having the appearance of motion. It's not about just churning yourself and tying yourself out because then you're just more likely to make bad decisions. 
Our whole goal is to avoid bad decisions. And the best way to do that is when you're at work, you know, have your game face on, have your game energy. But to do that, you're going to have to have other things in your life. You should read interesting books, you know, recharge. And actually that recharging is going to keep your mind open and, and, and keep you creative and not fall into the group think that a lot of people do. And so Dan kind of forced me to have a life. And that's what gave me the space in, in my life to, to offer to Nadia. Say, yeah, you know, after markets close, I'm, I'm actually pretty free uh, to, to work with you. Um, so you're doing this, tutoring these kids, and it's over the phone. And this is like around 2006. And somebody suggests that you make videos and you put it on YouTube. Is that, did that happen around that time? Yeah, it, actually, even before the videos happened, in around late 2005, you know, I have this background in software. And in the back of my mind, I have always been fascinated by can software play a role in improving human potential? And when I was in college, almost every job I did was in some way related to education or how tech and education could be useful. I remember I worked for the uh, some Spanish professors to help teach people Spanish. Then the, the next summer, I worked uh, on some software to, to help kids with attention deficit disorder learn math. Uh, and I created this little thing called Math Planet. So my brain was there throughout for a long time. And so when I started working with my cousins, I was like, wow, you know, it's hard for me to find good practice problems for them on the internet. Let me write some software for them that could generate practice problems and that uh, then can give them hints and solutions and immediate feedback and that could give me as their tutor data on how they're performing and how long things are taking them. And I wrote it <laughs> as a hobby. Uh, and that was that was the first Khan Academy. I, you know, it was, I set it up as a website. And and you just – it was not very expensive. Presumably, you just kind of did it yourself and offered it to to these kids. Yeah. And, and I remember, you know, a lot of my friends was like, well, is this a business? I was like, no, 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 not a business. I'm not a startup guy. I'll never do that again. Uh, this is <laughs> this this is my family project. That was my way of, frankly, protecting it emotionally. And yeah. I was at a dinner party and my friend, his name's Zuli, Zuli Ramzan, give him full credit. He's like, well, this is cool, Sal, but how are you scaling your actual lessons? And I said, you're right, Zuli, it's hard to do with 10 cousins what I was originally doing with just Nadia and her brothers. And he says, well, right. why don't you record some of your lessons as videos and upload them onto YouTube for your family? And I immediately, you know, my technologist side said, well, that's such a low-tech solution. And then I, I I vocalized him. I was like, no, that's like YouTube's for cats playing piano. It's for dogs on right. skateboard. <laughs> it, it, it's not for learning. And right. I went home that weekend and I, I think I probably had explained least common multiple to a cousin for like the eighth time. And I was like, maybe Zuli's got a point. Maybe I should make a video on least common multiples for my cousins. And and then it was just a, how do I make the video? I mean, you know, back in 2006, yeah. uh, cell phones weren't particularly good. I didn't have a no. video camera. And, and I, you know, you do a Google search, you realize, oh, there's something called screen capture software. And so I downloaded some you know, free screen capture software. And I started just essentially recording some of my digital scribbles using my pen tablet. Uh, yeah, and you, but you can hear my voiceover while I'm talking. Yeah. And it was, they were done very extemporaneously. You know, they were from my cousins. Uh, and um, I started uploading them onto YouTube and telling them, watch this at your own time and pace. And then we can, we can dig deeper when we get on the phone. And wow. after about a month, I asked them for feedback and they, they, they famously told me they liked me better on YouTube than in person. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. They just really liked having an on-demand version of their cousin that they could watch as much as they want. There was no shame in reviewing a concept that they should have learned in fourth grade. Uh, and 
I started to realize, you know, this this type of thing, especially math, and I was doing math and I started doing some physics and chemistry and biology as well. It's pretty evergreen content. If once you have a good explanation of adding fractions with unlike denominators, pretty much everyone in the world could use it and you don't really have to refresh it unless you figure out a better way of explaining adding fractions with unlike unlike denominators. I mean, I'm trying to figure out how you were thinking about this because, I mean, clearly you were motivated to help your relatives and, and these kids in your extended family and, and, and friends of friends. But um, I have to think that a part of you was like, maybe there's something bigger here. Or, or were you just not even thinking that at all? Oh, there was a for sure something. My, my brain, it, it oscillates between these like mega delusional you know, um, space opera science fiction ideas uh, and like, Sal, you're being crazy. Focus on on what you can do in the here and now. And so, you know, the reason why I was always fascinated by software technology and education is that it's not hard to imagine that if you you make something that can increase human potential by 10%, 20% or 100%, and if it scales like technology can, there's no reason why it can't affect all of of humanity one day. And- uh, you know, I was super inspired when I was young. In seventh grade, I read um, I, I read the Foundation series, uh, Isaac Asimov. And the protagonist is someone named Harry Seldon, who's kind of a, a new form of academic that's a combination of mathematics, economics, history, psych- psychology. And he's able to predict large-scale historical movements. And he sees, hmm. through his science, that the Galactic Empire is about to enter into a 10,000-year Dark Ages. And he decides to do something about it. He can't stop it from happening, but he can shorten it to a thousand years. And the way he does that is by taking the galaxy's knowledge and putting it into a foundation at the periphery of the galaxy. And I remember when I was seventh grade and I read that, I thought two things. Uh, One, why don't more people think on those scales? Like that, it feels so inspiring and epic to think on that scale well beyond ourselves. You know, and when I went into the hedge fund world, I realized most people don't even think beyond the, the next earnings period, much yeah. less much less generational or over centuries or over thousands of years. And then the other aha from that book in seventh grade was like, yeah, Harry Seldon's right. Like the way to preserve civilization is really through knowledge. It, it Like that is what defines a civilization and that is what defines human potential. And so, you know, while I was working on this in 2006 and now 2007, and I started getting thank you letters from folks around the world, you know, people who are soldiers in Iraq saying, I'm I'm using your content while I'm while I'm in Iraq to to prepare for college so I can go back to college people who dropped out of high school. I was like maybe maybe this project could be like the foundation. It could be this thing that keeps us from going into dark ages or maybe entering into a new age. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, I mean that's what I'm wondering when you started putting these videos out on on YouTube on the internet. Would you like wake up and see like 200 views and then 600 views the next day like yeah that's that's pretty accurate that's about what i were you I start- surprised were you like what is going on who's who's watching this I, I i was hoping that something like that would happen i mean you know when, when i right. put it on youtube and it asked whether i want to make it public i was like yeah i guess it would be pretty cool if other people could 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 benefit from this uh but then when you start getting you know not just the views but for i would say the comments especially you know people like opening up on the youtube message boards or opening up on you know they'll, they'll they can do the private uh, messaging on on youtube and they'll tell you their life story and how that one video unlocked their perspective i'm like oh my god this is this is a for that person, that video was a big deal, and I didn't really have to do anything extra for that person. Uh, it's really inspiring, and and I just got more and more hooked on it. 
Huh. Meanwhile, I should mention, I mean, you, you're you still with Dan at this point at the hedge fund. And then I guess at some point he decides to move the fund to California, right? Yeah. Um, we had moved out to Silicon Valley. Dan's pr- wife had become a professor at Stanford, which is why we had moved out here. And uh, so my wife was able to finish her fourth year at med school doing a bunch of rotations out here in, in the Bay Area. So we, you know, and now that we were on the West Coast, I was working from 5 a.m. till about two in the afternoon. So before our first child was born, I had a lot of time on my hands. Uh, you know, so I was spending about, you know, that four hours, that I was, four to five hours that I was spending after work, I was spending about half of it making videos and about half of it continuing to write code, write that software, that practice software for my family that, that other people were now using. And by... 2007, 2008, it was in the tens of thousands of people. And by 2009, it was in the hundreds of thousands of people were using it on a, on a regular basis. At what point did you say to yourself, I think I want to do this. I think I want to do this full time. I think I actually want to turn this into something. There were many moments, you know, you can imagine in the investing world, you have your share of not so great days. You're like, maybe this is not what I should do. Maybe I should be, a you know, this virtual tutor. And then you're like, okay, stop dreaming, Sal. You know, look, you got to pay off your debt, pay off your mortgage, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so, you know, I had multiple cycles of that over the years. People in Silicon Valley, they do understand quitting your job. You know, some angel investor writes a $100,000 check and right. you're off to the races. But yeah. I, I, I did incorporate it as a not-for-profit in 2008 to protect it. From the get-go, you, you said this is going to be a non-profit even before you decided to make this your full-time job? In my mind, it was almost an, uh, it was initially an emotional thing to do, which, you know, I was getting these letters from folks saying how it helped them. And that was such a precious thing, people's trust in me, that I never yeah. wanted them to, to even suspect that I'm doing it for any other reason. Um, now, look, there's a lot of for-profits in many industries that do incredible things. And even in education, there's for-profits that do good things, you know, obviously, I was working at a hedge fund. I'm, I, I believe in capitalism. I believe in, in 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 markets. But while I was at a hedge fund, I saw how much capital structure and incentives can really drive what an organization does. And yeah, and the only organizations that really do stay true to some social bottom line over long periods of time are nonprofits. Um, yeah, I, I did have some folks who were reaching out to me by 2008 saying. Hey, our kids have been using your stuff. We think it's great. We think this is going to be a, the next big play in ed tech. Yeah, uh, can, yeah. Can, can I write a check and we'll start this thing? I'm sure. And it was tempting. Yeah. Uh, but then by the second conversation, it was always like, okay, we'll give this stuff for free, hook people, and then you have the freemium content. We'll sell it. Yeah. Right. And and, and that just felt a little you know queasy to to me. Um. So so, but even when I set it up as a nonprofit, I said, you know. I'm not going to quit my day job. I have a great day job. Right. You know, this hedge fund thing, I can I can make a lot of money. What I can do as a nonprofit is maybe get other volunteers who want to help. Uh, maybe uh, if we get some philanthropy, maybe I can help hire other people. And maybe if, you know, if I could be on a trajectory like Dan was, you know, Dan, Dan if, if he kept at it, could have easily become, you know, the next Warren, Warren Buffett. But, uh, you know, he, he decided to kind of pseudo-retire at, at 40 to... Uh, focus focus on his family when if he kept going, he could have easily become a multi-billionaire. Wow. And I'm like, maybe I can retire early and be, you know, reasonably well off yeah. so that, that I could I could do this at that point. That I mean, that makes sense. So the plan was, let me uh, make the money I need to make 
and be financially secure, and then I can devote my life to this thing and not worry about money. Yeah, exactly right. So, so what? How did you decide to leave that relatively secure and stable, not stable, but you know this this path towards immense riches and jump into this full time? What what happened? What was the catalyst? Um. You know, there's this guy, Jeremiah Hennessy, who's the founder of BJ's Restaurants. He got my email address uh, and and emailed me. And I was like, oh, this guy runs a large restaurant chain, publicly traded. Um, yeah, it seems legitimate. I should talk to him. And he st- I started having like these therapy conversations with him almost like on a weekly basis. And he would just c- keep calling me and say, Sal, your purpose in life is not to to be a, a hedge fund investor. I'm sure you're good at it, but that's not your purpose in life. You don't realize the content you've made, what it's done for my own family, what it could do for the world. You need to be doing this. And he's like, there's gotta be some way to, that someone will fund this as a nonprofit. This, you know, the impact on the world could be so huge. And so when a legitimate person tells you that this is a legitimate thing to do, you start saying maybe, but then you go home, you look at your, you know, my, my son was born in February of 2009. And I'm like, okay, no, I have, I have another mouth to feed. We look, you know, yeah. we, um, we were renting a house, uh, you know, that the rent had gone up because we had to move to a larger house. My mother-in-law had moved with, in with us as well. I'm like, there's no way I could do this right now. You were not a millionaire. I was not a millionaire. Yeah. And then by um, fall of 2009, there were several hundred thousand folks who were using the stuff I was making on a regular basis. I got a call from the the local tech museum. They had this Mm -hmm. annual award ceremony, which is a pretty high profile thing called the Tech Awards. And they called and said, you've been nominated, one of three entities nominated to, to win this year's Tech Award. And I was like, wow, you know, and, and so I was getting that validation that like, well, people are starting to take notice of this thing. And then um, CNN had called at around the exact same time. I mean, if you, everyone remembers the context, the market was falling apart. And it turns yeah. out, you know, I had made videos on not just on math and science, I actually had made videos explaining the stock market and videos explaining what mortgage backed securities were and credit default swaps and collateralized debt obligations. And I started getting media houses contacting me saying, we are watching your explanations before reporting on the financial crisis. Wow. And we think they're the best wow. explanations out there. And then I remember um, Rick Sanchez on CNN reached out to me, says, I want you to come onto my show for 20 minutes and explain the financial crisis to America. <laughs> so I'm like, wow, like people are paying attention. So that was like my first signs from the universe that maybe this is what I should be doing. Your wife, I think, was not yet a doctor. She was still in residency or maybe... She was a... a yeah, she was in fellowship at this point. Um, when you said, hey, I'm going to leave finance and do this, was she nervous? I mean, was she like, Sal, like, it's great, but, I mean, we don't have enough cash. Or did she say, okay, do it, but just for a short period of time? Yeah, it was a process, you know, and, you know, look, every marriage, there's, I would call it moods or weather to the marriage. And, and, uh, you know, if I caught her at a bad moment, it'd be like, I just get a weird look. Uh, but if I caught her at a good moment, she'd be like, no, you know, look like I, you've been showing me these letters you've been getting. They are incredible. And it does seem like you're onto something, but, but, but then, you know, let's look at our finances and we would look at it, you know, our rent, you know, to rent a, a four bedroom house out here at the time, it seemed like a lot. It was $4,000 yeah. a month. Uh, we were, you know, she was making 
probably $40,000 a year as a, as a fellow. Yeah. Um, my mother-in-law was living with us. We had a, a child. We, we were hoping to have more children. Um, our expenses were, were only going higher. Uh, so she saw that I, I was having trouble focusing on anything else. Yeah. You know, that down payment we were saving, we said like, okay, maybe, maybe we can dig into that for a little bit for, for a year. I, I also say that a couple of philanthropists had reached out and said, we're interested in what you're doing. And so you know, I was like, oh, surely one of these people will fund it. So yeah. let me- And it'll let, be, and we're off to the races, right? And we're so off to the races. A million bucks and we're good to go. That's Exactly. So I quit the job and then it doesn't work that way. It work out that way. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you jump into this with both feet and um, did the money start to come in immediately? Did you start to get donors sending you checks? Kind of. <laughs> you know, those early, those early funders who seemed promising- you know, by conversation four or five, I started getting, well, this is really exciting, but it doesn't really fit in our portfolio or our budgets are already allocated. And so you go several months into it. I did have this little donate button on, on my website and there were people starting to donate. It was amounting to a few hundred dollars every month. Uh, if it was anyone listening, you know, thank you for that. <laughs> but but it, we were digging into our savings about five or $6,000 a month. Uh, so it was, it was incredibly stressful. Uh, and, you know, but my male ego was trying to shelter my family for, from it. So I was putting on a strong face to my friends and family. Yeah. And, you know, you could imagine my mother who, you know, when I told her I'd quit my job, I, you know, I, I still remember her first word was what? You know, it was literally <laughs> in that, in that, in that tone, because, you know, as, as we talked about, you know, I, I had now fallen into a really lucrative career and then to give that yeah. up and to do that for something that was like not something that she could tell her friends at the next Indian party. Um, you know, not only was there a monetary aspect to it, there was probably a shame aspect to this as well. Um, that, oh that uh, you know, was 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 hard. Love, love your mom. <laughs> um, yeah, no, right. I mean, she came to the United States with nothing and really you know, kind of was scraping by most of her career. And her son goes to MIT and then Harvard Business School. And now he's calling mom and saying, um, yeah, I'm going to do this nonprofit thing. Yeah, that no one that no one has funded. <laughs> this nonprofit <laughs> thing that no one has funded. And I'm living <laughs> off of savings. Would you like to see your grandchild that I really can't support? <laughs> it's not, it's, it's a, you know, we'd go to gatherings and... um you know, I, I remember one, at one party and they kind of asked what, what, what I do for a living. And I said, well, you know, I used to do this, uh, but, you know, now I do this thing where I make math videos and I write the software as a nonprofit. And, you know, and they're asking all these questions. How is it funded? What's yeah. the model? I was like, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm still working on that. <laughs> still figuring it out. And I remember when they were walking away, I mean, they literally said this, like, well, you know, he's lucky that his wife is a physician, you know, and it's like this, it's like, a punch to the gut of your like fragile male ego. It's like, yeah. no, I can support my family too. You, you wait, you wait. <laughs> when we come back in just a moment, how Sal gets his first big donation for Khan Academy and how he eventually winds up having a slightly surreal meeting with Bill Gates. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. As a business-to-business -business marketer, your needs are unique. 
B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. Isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions for you and your customers. LinkedIn Ads allow you to build the right relationships, drive results, and reach your customers in a respectful environment. You'll be able to drive results with targeting and measurement tools built specifically for B2B. In technology, LinkedIn generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social media platforms. I've talked to hundreds of founders and business leaders every day on this show, and I've learned that LinkedIn has been vital to the growth of their companies. It helps them build relationships with customers and get direct access to thousands of decision makers. Make B2B marketing everything it can be and get a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash built this to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash built this. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, so if you're a business owner or hiring manager struggling to attract and retain top talent, it's no secret that finding the right employees and keeping them engaged can be an uphill battle. Fortunately, there's Insperity, a leading HR provider. They'll help you improve hiring and compensation practices, and your people will get the training tools they need to thrive. Download their free ebook at insperity.com for tips to build your dream team. Don't let a lack of talent hinder your goals. Spend less time worrying about recruitment and retention and more time growing your business. See how Insperity provides HR that makes a difference at Insperity.com. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. Now, picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Don't just talk about improving. Masterclass helps you actually do it. There are over 200 classes to pick from, like Anna Wintour's Masterclass on Creativity and Leadership that's helped lots of people learn new ways to nurture talent and make bold decisions, two things that are essential for any leader or entrepreneur. Plus, Every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. And right now, our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash built. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash built. Masterclass.com slash built. What are some of the key traits that successful entrepreneurs have in common? Why do some people succeed when others fail? How do you build something with no connections, no money, and no experience? And can you learn to develop the skills and traits it takes to become an entrepreneur? To find out the answers to all these questions, pick up a copy of my new book, How I Built This. If you love this show, you will love this book. How I Built This, the book, is available everywhere books are sold or at GuyRoz.com. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So it's 2009, and Sal has just left his high-paying job at a hedge fund to focus on Khan Academy full-time. And since it's just him, no other coders, no other teachers, this new venture is not costing him a lot of money. But what is costing him 
is the fact that he's no longer making any money. You know, the first three months, you're euphoric. You're, you know, you're super excited about your new lifestyle as this nonprofit do-gooder and all of that. Um, <laughs> I would say by month seven or eight, I couldn't sleep. I, I, I mean, I literally couldn't sleep. I, I Anxiety? I was, yeah, I was getting anxious. I was um, waking up in the middle of the night in cold sweats. I was, you know, I would... I would look at my bank account over and over again and look at the, you know, look at our expenses. I would run financial models for my family, uh, you know, and my wife would say, Oh, what are you? I was like, Oh, nothing. You know, like, it, it, I mean, in hindsight, I was like, I shouldn't have been so kept it just to myself, but I wasn't, I was in a really bad place mentally and, and the stress and the anxiety was, was, was killing me. Was there also that kind of maybe residual fear of like failing? Yeah, I think there's, you know, we talked a lot about childhood and, you know, not having a lot of resources growing up. I think I, and I frankly still have a fear of being one catastrophe away from financial hardship. Yeah. And, you know, in 2009, I was like, I made the catastrophe happen. <laughs> like I, I it, and it wasn't like a hurricane or something <laughs> that that's ruined our finances. It's not a fire. It's, it's like, I quit a good job and like the type of job that I had is not easy to get. Uh, these are highly sought after jobs. Yeah. You know, if I really had to, I could probably go get a job, but would I be able to get a, as good of a job of, as what I had? That that actually probably was was unlikely. And you know, I would try to channel whatever nervous energy or anxiety I had into the work. I was like, let me make more videos. Let me right. Uh, let, let let me make more content. Let me write more code and and hope uh, that eventually someone will notice. I guess like sort of maybe it was a kind of a low point that you hit and a wealthy, very wealthy person reached out to you. This is Ann Dorr, the wife of John Dorr, um, the billionaire venture capitalist, um, kind of reached out to make a donation. What what was the story? Yeah, you know, this is, you know, I, I have this theory that benevolent aliens are, <laughs> are helping me so that um, Khan Academy can help prepare humanity for first contact. And... <laughs> You know, the Andor coming into my life and then, you know, what happened shortly afterwards um, it was May of 2010. And, you know, I was getting these donations off of PayPal, you know, people donating $10, $20 every now and then a $50 donation would come in. That was pretty exciting. And then um, I saw a, a $10,000 donation come in. And I was like, oh, what? It came in through the site, just $10,000 just like that? Yeah, it was. Uh, I. I I mean, just like I got an email notification from like PayPal that like a donation has come in. I was like, oh, is this going to be a 50? I was like, oh, it's a 10,000. And and then, you know, I immediately did a Google search. And I was like, oh, wow. Like Ann Doerr, she's like a real philanthropist. Yeah. And I immediately emailed her and I said, you know, thank you so much for this incredibly generous donation. This is the largest donation that Khan Academy has ever received. I, yeah. I tried to project like I'm a real institution. And if we were a physical school, you would not have a building named after you. <laughs> and and uh, Anne immediately emails back and says, well, y you know, I, I didn't realize that you, you weren't getting this kind of donations. Um, I, I, I see that you're based in Mountain View. Uh, you know, I've been using your stuff with my daughters. I've been using it even myself to understand the financial crisis and, and accounting and finance. If you have time, I would love to grab lunch with you. And you wow. know, I, mean, I was like, yeah, absolutely. And so a week later, maybe a few days later, we were in downtown Palo Alto at an Indian buffet restaurant. <laughs> she asks me over lunch, so 
what, what, what's your goal here? And I told her when I filled out the paperwork with the IRS to become a nonprofit, that little part of the form was like mission colon and they give you a line and a half. I filled out a free world-class education for anyone, anywhere. And <laughs> she looked at me, she's like, well, that's ambitious. How, how do you see yourself doing that? And, and I told her, you know, be very clear that's a mission i don't think i'm just going to be able to check it off this weekend and then move on to healthcare or something <laughs> but I, I i showed her you know she was already familiar with the content i was making i showed her the exercise the software platform i was making i said look videos are nice and i want to keep making videos i really enjoy that i want to translate it into the languages of the world but the real learning happens when students are able to work on exercises get immediate feedback ideally teachers and parents can get dashboards to understand where their kids are and how to do uh, more interventions uh you know i by this point been rejected by so many major foundations probably about 20 of them uh, so, but but in preparation for all of them, I had a binder of of testimonials from around the world. I mean, it was literally several hundreds of pages thick, and it, you know these letters. So I showed it to her. I showed her how the the usage was growing exponentially, uh, and I was like, you know, I think this could eventually reach like all of humanity. <laughs> and she's like, well, you you've made a lot of progress. Uh, how I only have one question: How are you supporting yourself? Yeah. And as proud of a way as possible, I said. I'm not. And she, she kind of processes that. Because she's thinking you're a big shot. You, you're, you're like doing TV interviews and uh, hundreds of thousands of people using this, like, right? Yeah. No, I mean, I had been on CNN and I didn't realize there was actually, there was a buzz about Khan Academy in Silicon Valley at the time hmm. I, that I didn't know about. No one, hmm. they, they weren't, put, I wasn't in the know. I wasn't even in the right circles to be experiencing the buzz. And so anyway, she, you know, she, she, she offered to pay the bill and I, I said, oh, if you insist. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, 10 minutes later, I'm, I'm driving into my, my driveway and I get a text message from Anne and it says, uh, you really need to be supporting yourself. I've just wired you a hundred thousand dollars. Wow. That was just, you know, it's like one of those moments where you just like stare at the phone and you sit in your driveway for like the next half an hour. Wow. Uh, like, you know, holy crap. I mean, I, th I, th I think I was, t I, I might've cried, you know, like it, yeah. it, it was that type yeah. of, um, yeah. you, cause you, you know, all that stress that builds up over the months, all of a sudden it just gets released, you know, and it's not that hundred thousand was all of a sudden going to like change everything forever, but it's like, okay, I can now pay my bills. We're not gonna have to dip into savings. It, it, you know, it made it, it gave a, like, I can do this for a few more months mm -hmm. at least for a year at least, uh, yeah. or, or maybe even a little longer. So, so she, fires you a $100,000 check. And I guess that same year, 2010, um, the Aspen Ideas Festival happens, and Bill Gates is there, and he's he's telling the audience that he uses this thing called Khan Academy. Um, how did you find out about Bill Gates mentioning you at Aspen? So um, I start getting text messages from Anne, which you can imagine I now take very seriously. And she... There were four or five of them, and they were kind of cryptic, as text messages often are. And, and, and they said, this is Anne writing, I'm at the Aspen Ideas Festival, Main Pavilion, Walter Isaacson interviewing Bill Gates. Gates, last five minutes talking about Khan Academy. Wow. And once again, I just kind of stared. I was like, what is she talking about? And I, I started doing a web search for, you know, Aspen, Gates, Khan Academy. After about 10 minutes, I actually found like the delayed 
recording of the interview and Walter Isaacson asks Bill Gates, what are you excited about right now? Yeah. You know, he didn't even say that. <laughs> and he says, well, there's this one guy, uh, I think his name is Sal Khan, and he's created this thing called Khan Academy. I've been using it with my kids. I've been using it myself, and it's really great. And, and it was clear, not only that was he using it, but he was... He was eerily familiar with my story. He's like, yeah, this one guy, his his wife let him quit his job. He was making stuff for his cousins. Y- you know, it's, it's just one of those moments where you're just like, is this really happening? Well, yeah, were well, you just I... like, what? Did you have any idea that Bill Gates was using this with his children? I had no idea what, at, at all. <laughs> I mean, it, it's... It, it, it was it, it definitely gelled with some of the delusions that I've had over over time, but it, it didn't. It, it, it you know I had I I had no clue, and you know I remember that night I went home. I immediately showed my wife the video uh, when she got home from her fellowship, and you know we both kind of stared at each other a little bit, and I was just like, "What do I do now? You know, like what yeah. do I do? I do 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 I do I call him? How do I contact? Yeah. Like, I'm sure he's not listed. Right. Like it's not. Yeah, how do you not, contact Bill Gates? It wasn't obvious. And uh, so, so simultaneously, uh, a reporter from Fortune uh, had reached out actually before this happened saying, oh, you know, there's this thing you're doing. It's really interesting. We'd like to do a story about it. And so I was already talking to the reporter and that reporter calls and he's like, did you know that Bill Gates uses Khan Academy? I was like, I had no idea. And then the reporter, uh, Robert Kaplan uh, with Fortune, he says, I'm going to call Bill up. <laughs> I'm like, if you think you can call Bill up and do that. And so he calls me like two days later. He's like, Bill took my call. He, I just interviewed Bill Gates about you. And, and, and it's like this really surreal thing because this person, that's obviously like a lifetime hero. Like, you know, you grow yeah. up in computer science reading about Bill Gates. Right. And, and then the fortune article came out and I still had not met Bill yet or, or even had any contact with them. And the article said something like, uh, no, the title was Bill Gates's favorite teacher. Wow. You know, and, and you know, the press sometimes writes these hyperbolic headlines. To and I almost felt insecure. I was like, "Am I his favorite teacher? Like, did he say that? Are they misrepresenting?" Like, I felt serious imposter right. syndrome. Right. And then I got a call. Uh, I, uh, my cell phone rings right when I'm going to record a video, and I answer. I say, "Hello," and I hear, "You know, this is Larry Cohen. I'm Bill Gates' chief of staff. Uh, you might have heard that Bill's a fan." And I was like, "Yeah, I heard that." <laughs> <laughs> and if you're if you're free over the next couple of weeks, we'd love to fly you up to Seattle and learn more about what you're doing and maybe ways we could work together. And wow. I was looking at my calendar for the month. Uh, it was completely blank. And so I said, I said, yeah, maybe next Wednesday, you know, I've got to cut my nails, do some laundry. I'm happy to meet, happy, happy to meet with Bill. I can make that work. Uh, so, yeah, I, I flew up and, 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 and we had that meeting. What was that like? And it was a little bit awkward. There wasn't like an obvious like, oh, you know, I love what you're doing. Tell me. It was like, oh, so, you know, there was a little bit of a prompt. I think Larry might have said, oh, so tell Bill what you're up to. And and then I just started into, into, I had my, I had my uh, laminated slides that showed Anne with me. I love it. You didn't bring a laptop. You brought laminated slides. I love that. I mean, there's an irony to it that, you know, I'm obviously someone involved in technology. Uh, Khan Academy is based on technology. I'm presenting to the creator of PowerPoint. So, so yeah, I went through it. And, and at the end, and, you know, he, he didn't give during the presentation a lot of feedback. So I just kind of kept going. And it's one of those moments where, you know, 20% of your brain is trying to do what it needs to do. And then the other 80% of your brain's saying, 
you're talking to Bill Gates. That's Bill yeah. Gates. He's yeah. three feet away. Don't mess this up, Sal. Don't mess this up. You're about to mess this up. Don't mess this up. Um, and then when I was kind of done, he, he kind of nods. He's like, yeah, no, this makes a ton of sense. This is great. This is great. And I'm like, oh, my God, this, you know. And, and, the, and, and then I got overconfident. I, I remember I threw out another idea. He's like, no, that doesn't make sense. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, but was there any like, and here's a plan on how we could collaborate? Or was there any of that at all? No, they they asked. They they Bill said, well, what would you do with more resources? And you know, I I, I was like, this is a question I have to answer really well. Uh, and I said, look, you know, it's just me in a closet right now. With more resources, we could translate this to the languages of the world. We could build out the software platform so more people can access it. We could build tools for teachers and. You know, I said, I think we could, we're reaching hundreds of thousands now. I think we could reach a million folks by the end of this year, and it could be 10 or 100 million, you know, by the end of the decade. They said, well, what do you need for that? And, you know, I said, look, if I, if, if I could hire up about five, six engineers and educators and content folks, I think we'll be up and running. Um, so, you know, fully loaded costs in Silicon Valley, that'd be a million, million and a half dollars a year. Um, and so they said, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll think about that. That seems reasonable. So, um uh, and then a few days later, they said, yeah, uh, that's they, they feel like they could do that. So I started talking to the Gates Foundation about about that uh, that grant. And, uh, you know, simultaneously, uh, folks from Google had reached out. Wow. You know, Google had made this promise in 2008, which was the 10 year anniversary of Google, that it would donate 10 million dollars to five projects that had the potential to change the world. <laughs> and they determined that one of those projects has to be a project that has a chance to educate the world. And. They on their own said, we've done a lot of research and we think what you are doing has the best chance of helping to educate the world. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, well, I'm glad you've been listening in on my delusions. And by fall of 2010, uh, both the Google and the Gates Foundation each gave about $2 million. Wow. Uh, uh, so we had a $4 million initial funding for that first two years to hire up a team, internationalize and, and start scaling Khan Academy. Wow. More, more than $4 million. Yeah. So now you've got to grow. You've got to build. You've got to get office space. You've got to hire people. You've got to really turn this thing that was just you into a thing. So what did you do? I mean, that's kind of overwhelming, right? I mean, isn't it? Yeah, it was. I mean, you know, I immediately call um, one of my closest friends, Shantanu Sinha, he was someone I first met actually in Louisiana. He beat me at a math competition in 10th grade. <laughs> and then we were on the same team uh, representing Louisiana at national academic games. So that's how I got to know him. He ended up becoming my roommate freshman year at MIT. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're, we're pretty much like brothers. And I, I said, hey, Shantanu, I need help. Uh, like, I know this wasn't on your career path to, to start a, to, to help me kind of get this thing off the ground but like I need your help and yeah. I think it'll be fun and uh, you know I, he, he took a couple of days to think about it and um, he decided to, to take the plunge with me and so he quit his McKinsey job and uh, joined Khan Academy as, as a president and COO uh, to essentially help me turn into a real organization at the same time there were these two engineers I mean it's once again it's really eerie how these people came out of the woodwork these two engineers that summer uh 
Ben Kamins and Jason Rosoff, they had volunteered for Khan Academy. And I just assumed there were some young kids who were looking for some experience. But when they were volunteering, I'm like, these, these guys are incredible. Like, these are some of the best engineers and designers I've ever worked with in my life. Who are they? And then I realized they're, they're actually like known figures. <laughs> they were like, you know, uh, really uh, well-known engineers and designers. Um, and so they were Shantun my next call, uh, who said, hey, would you guys want to work full-time for Khan Academy? I think we're going to get funding. And uh, they, uh, after a few months, we were able to convince them. They worked initially remotely from New York, but then they were able to, to move out to the Bay Area. So as you began to grow and scale and hire more people, um, do, I'm assuming you kind of wanted to professionalize it a little bit more and maybe kind of start to replace some of those early screen capture videos that, you, that, you, that you'd made in 2006 and seven. Yeah, you know, the interesting, there's a, a constant tension as an organization grows um, of how do you make sure you do what's right from a professionalization point of view, from a scaling, from a managerial point of view, but how do you make sure that you're not just doing the things that everyone else does that ends up creating these large bureaucratic organizations that, you know, are, aren't always the most innovative? And how do you make sure you don't lose whatever secret sauce you had that made you a success initially? And a lot of Khan Academy's I can say not so secret sauce, I believe was its eccentricity, its quirkiness, its informality, coupled with its depth and intuition and desire to, you know, show the wonder in the universe and the curiosity. And uh, so, you know, the last 10 years for me have just been, how do I, how do I balance that? You know, can I bring in other people who also compliment us, but we do not lose uh, that entrepreneurial, that creativity, that curiosity uh, uh, that eccentricity, that that quirkiness, that made Khan Academy what it is. What was the? I mean, at that point, you were still what you were offering was still ma- mainly math and uh, finance. Was the ambition to to offer as much as you possibly could could offer in as many subject areas as possible? Yeah, I remember writing kind of these envisioning docs back in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. It says, okay, we want to create a world where anyone on the planet has access to all the core academic learning they need from pre-K through the core of college, across subjects and grades. It was part of the initial vision that, yeah, one day we would try to figure out, you know, language arts, humanities, et cetera, et cetera, because they're important, early learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we'll just keep running experiments to see how they go. And, and uh, you know, we're, we're still on that journey. Yeah. I interviewed... Um the founders of Headspace, which is a different, obviously, it's a for-profit company. It's a, a meditation app. But initially, all the meditations were Andy, Andy Puttycomb, if, if you're familiar with it. I'm very I'm very familiar with it. Yeah. Right, right. And initially, all the videos were, were Sal Khan. But Sal Khan is not scalable. You cannot make tens of thousands of videos. Was that clear to you pretty, pretty soon after you started, the, the funding started to come in, that you needed to get other people to make videos to your standards? Um, now, you know, we, we don't have a lot of folks making videos. I still make a lot of them. I, I pretty much make all of the math and science video. And then we have a few other folks who are doing some history videos and, and some language arts videos. Um, yeah. and, and one of the reasons why we, we were, we became a little sensitive of like, not just outsourcing it to 500 folks is we got a lot of feedback that, you know, education, even when it's done in this kind of distance way or asynchronous, you have to really trust your teacher. You have to trust that they're they're going to get me to some place that I 
I know it's going to be insightful and there's going to be an aha moment that you're willing to invest in it. And we've had moments where, you know, there's a video from me, a video from me, and then there's a video from someone else. And it just, even though they might be explaining that better than I could have, it could be dissonant for the student where they're feeling, wait, I, I really got connected that my teacher and now a substitute showed up. <laughs> so but we've been trying to um, balance that. It's amazing. I, I met David Coleman a couple years ago, the, the head of the college board, and he talked about the partnership that they did with Khan Academy where you offer free SAT prep, which it essentially really had a pretty big impact on the for-profit SAT prep uh, industry because you're essentially offering this product and service for free. Yeah, you know, it's um, I, I think all of these players, they're trying to do what they can in the context that they're doing it. But David Coleman reached out uh, and it was really, I think, David's brainchild when he took over the college board that, you know, the college board, the folks who administer the SAT and the AP exams, you know, it was the college board is a non-for-profit that came into existence to try to level the playing field that, you know, a a hundred years ago, the only kids who were getting into Ivy league schools were kids of legacy kids who went to the right schools. Exactly. And the notion of the SAT is let's give a chance for the kid in Metairie, Louisiana <laughs> to, 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 to compete with the kids from Andover or Choate or Deerfield. But over time, as we know, this whole industry, this billion dollar industry came up uh, around what looked like creating a perceived and maybe actual advantage for the, for the, you know, upper middle class or, or affluent. And, you know, David said, look, we've been secretly observing Khan Academy. And what we really like about Khan Academy is, Y'all are about really learning the material. I had actually made some SAT videos for Nadia and my cousins. I actually went through the SAT practice book and I did every problem in the book on video for my cousins. <laughs> so that it was like 400 something problems. And I was afraid that the college board was going to sue me because I didn't take their permission to like screen capture their problems. <laughs> um, but Dave was like, I watched that. And what I really liked about it is at no point did you say, oh, this is how you guess. <laughs> you always said, oh, this is a concept. You need to learn to be ready for college. This is where you learn it. This is how you learn it. Uh, there was a little bit of test-taking strategies. He's like, that's what test prep should be. It should be something that genuinely makes you better, genuinely makes you more prepared for college. And and how you perform the SAT is just going to be a byproduct of that. Yeah. So he said, how about we partner to create the world's best test prep that happens to be free? And uh, it made sense to me. And over time, the relationship has evolved where they actually pay us resources uh, to create free test prep, hmm. uh, which is, you know, that's that's the type of revenue I love because yeah. it helps sustain us, but it, it's it's free to the student. Yeah. This year, the most challenging year for school-age kids um, for many decades, and it's looking like this year probably will be remote. Most of the year will be remote for many, many, if not most kids in the United States. Um, I have to imagine that you have seen a dramatic uptick in users' usage this year. Yeah, you know, we, we first caught wind in February, this past February, that you know something interesting was happening. We got a letter from a teacher in South Korea telling us that he was heavily dependent on Khan Academy as they had their, their nationwide school closures. And that was the first time I was like, wow, a whole country's closing schools because of this COVID thing? That's that's wild. And and uh, a few weeks later, you know, we I live here in Santa Clara County, which is, uh, I think it was the first community spread right, happened here. Right, and right. Uh, a local private school had to shut down due to contact tracing. That's when it first dawned on us. It's like, wow, this, this might hit the U.S., uh, which even then seemed like science fiction in early March. But, you know, 
it was one of those moments where you look left and you look right and you realize, I think this is us. Because if schools have to shut down physically in the United States, people are going to need something clearly online. It would have to cover multiple subjects and grades. It would have to have efficacy research behind it. It would have to be trusted. You know, it should be accessible on mobile devices and computers, everything. It was clear we were gonna we we're gonna have a big role to play. So we started, you know, asking our engineering team to stress test the servers, make sure we could handle more server load. <laughs> and then the next week, you know, California was one of the first states to say that they were gonna close. And then by the end of this week, pretty much most of the country and the world had shut down. You know, we normally see about, pre-COVID, it was about 20 million students were coming per month, and that increased to 30 million, and then they were also spending 50% more time on the site. Uh, And then, you know, our our registrations went through the roof. You know, those went 10x of, of normal on a daily basis, and I think right now we're sitting at around 110 million registered users. What what is your what is your operating budget your annual operating budget? Our annual operating budget now is in the the high fifty millions, wow. which every time I say it gives me a cortisol spike. Yeah, uh, but about a uh, five million of our of our funding comes from uh, a few hundred thousand people donating on average twenty thirty dollars. So wow. there's a lot of people uh, donating because hopefully still hitting the donate button on the site. Yeah, I mean asking people for money is a very uh, humbling thing to do. Um, my hope was always, let me show people how great this is. I have to become a little bit more explicit saying that I have a need, uh, but, and then hopefully people would show up. Yeah. I, I think, um, the last time I checked, it's, it's more than this now, um, Khan Academy videos have been viewed like almost 2 billion times, which is insane. Um, I have to imagine, Sal, over the last few years, as the kind of ed tech sector has exploded, right? And lots of schools buy these programs, Dreambox and other um, for-profit programs that are available to help children with math and other language skills, et cetera. Um, I mean, I'm sure people came to you and said, Sal, let's spin off a for-profit channel here. You've got something big here. You know, there's... There's there you know and and then you won't have to worry about raising money for for Khan Academy you know you can still do that but let's let's do that Did, I mean that must have happened that must still happen you know yeah we we do oftentimes you know sometimes I'll go to a potential philanthropist and they're like well I'd rather invest than donate you know yeah. something like that um, and you know people I think there's some creative ideas that I would entertain they're like well you know Khan Academy's brand is so valuable. You know, what if we could take that brand and do it in this tangential space as, you know, and, and, and Khan Academy can have equity and maybe it can help build an endowment for, you know, and I'm, I'm always open to um, ideas. But what I always remind myself and look, I, I'm, I'm not someone who has transcended, you know, material desires. I try to transcend material desires, but I'm, you know, I, I every now and then go to a friend who's, you know, done well with the, their IPO or something and they've, they got the new Tesla or they're living in a, you know, they're living slightly upstream the, the income gradient in our neighborhood, you know, and, 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 and uh, they're living a little higher up the hill. Um, but but I, I remind myself, one, I, I consider myself incredibly fortunate to be able to do what I, I am doing. And, you know, the way I think about it is I've done my philanthropy in reverse order. And, it, you know, I, I could have stayed in the hedge fund world and, you know, maybe one day become a multimillionaire or, or, or larger. And then but then what would I have done with that Monday? You know, I'm right. not someone who, who wants that much. You know, I, I want to be able to, you know, have have a backyard, uh, be able to, you know, uh, support the family, you know, go on a vacation once or twice a year. Right. And, and anything above that, if I did become a billionaire, I frankly would have donated it to an effort like Khan Academy. So you might as well just cut out the middleman. 
<laughs> you know, just time shift it and, and work on it. And, and I do generally think that it has benefited the mission and the vision uh, because once, you know, people hopefully are viewing it as an institution. They do, they're, they're, tr- they're rooting for it because they, they realize that it's not, it doesn't have an ulterior motive. You know, the, the, out of everybody I've had on the show over the past four years that you are most like is Jimmy Wales. Jimmy Wales has had an incredibly enormous influence on the world with Wikipedia, right? Had they done this as a for-profit, he could have been a multimillionaire. His argument was it wouldn't have worked. You had to make it a nonprofit. And by the way, he said, look, I don't really care about having lots of money. I, I have a really interesting life. I get to meet really interesting people. Interesting people want to meet me. I get to have get exposed to all these ideas. That, to me, is worth more than any amount of money I could ever have. And I, that's really stuck with me because I, I think he's right. I think he's right. I, I agree with him. I mean, you know, I, I um, like Jimmy Wales, by virtue of this adventure I've been on, I get lenses into really interesting parts of the world, which for the most part have made me more optimistic about the world. You know, I, I every now and then I'm, you know, get invited to various conferences that, you know, where, you know, very powerful people are talking about the problems of society and how to fix them. And mm. when I, when you, when you, when you get into these circles, you realize most of these people are honestly just trying to help. You might not agree with everyone, et cetera, et cetera, but um, it's, it's actually been very, uh, it's made me more optimistic about the world, not less. <laughs> When you think about um, this, just this incredible journey and and the amazing success of of Khan Academy, how much do you think it has to do with um, you know your skill and how hard you worked and, and your intelligence, and how much do you attribute it to luck? It's all of the, all of the above. I mean, it's you know one person can call it luck, one person might call it benevolent aliens working in your favor <laughs> to prepare humanity for first contact. But yeah, there's something. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that I, 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 I can't, I mean, there's a lot that I can't take credit for. I mean, and, and above and beyond luck, there's, circ- I guess it's luck where I was born, where I was born. I had the teachers I had, had the, the friendship supports that I had, and then, um, you know, f- fell into things at the right time. And, but every now and then you see a door crack open. You say, I think there's something interesting on the other yeah. side of the door and, and you've got to sprint through it. <laughs> and, yeah. and so I try not to overthink when, when there are signs in, in my life that like that door is open. Don't, don't, don't make someone have to force you through the door, like run through that door. That's Sal Khan, founder of Khan Academy. By the way, if you Google his full name, Salman Khan, you will find at least one other famous person who has exactly the same name. That other Salman Khan is one of the most popular Bollywood actors in the world. And, and actually, I was I was in India five years ago, and I, had, and I met him. I think it's just because you know people from the subcontinent like just get a kick out of things like yeah. that. Let's get this guy and that guy to <laughs> Let's hang get out Sal together. Khan and Sal Khan together. Yeah. So there's there's some YouTube videos of us, you yeah. know, having getting co-interviewed. He's a he's a big star, and yeah, he's like a big heartthrob. He's like a major heartthrob. Yeah. He's also very well known for his physique. He's kind of the yeah. the yes. guy that 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 taught Bollywood that you know Indians don't all have to look like software engineers. <laughs> <laughs> And thanks so much for listening to the show this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can write to us at hibt at npr.org. Our Twitter handles are at howibuiltthis or at Guy Raz. Our Instagram accounts are at guy.raz or at howibuiltthisnpr. Our show was produced this week by Jed Anderson with music composed by Ramtin Arablui. 
thanks also to Julia Carney, Candace Lim, Dareth Gales, J.C. Howard, Neva Grant, and Jeff Rogers. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This. Yo, Trey. Yeah, Kevin, what's up, man? I was just thinking, what would have happened if Drew Brees didn't fail his physical with the Dolphins and ended up playing under Nick Saban in Miami? There's a good shot the Finns establish a dynasty. Tom Brady and Bill Belichick probably don't become goats, and Tuscaloosa doesn't become the center of the college football universe. That's a butterfly effect for real. Hey, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier. We're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Intercepted at the goal line by Malcolm Butler. Sorry, Marshawn, still too soon. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies-style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. Hi, I'm Misha Brown, and I'm the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each episode, comedians join me to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently on The Big Flop, we looked at the reality TV show, The Swan. The problem, this dream opportunity quickly became a viewing nightmare. They were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.